If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We hope you've been enjoying the History Extra podcast and all it has to offer. Summer is the perfect time to delve deeper into the things you love. So subscribe to BBC History magazine for just £24.99 every six issues, saving 30% on the shop price. Plus, you will receive a book of your choice worth up to £30. Choose from Russia, Revolution and Civil War, 1917 to 1921 by Anthony Beaver, In Search of the Dark Ages by Michael Wood, signed edition, in Search of Mary Seacole, The Making of a Cultural Icon by Helen Rappaport, signed edition. Or Persians, The Age of the Great Kings by Professor Lloyd Llewellyn Jones. To take advantage of this offer and for more information, visit www.buysubscriptions.com forward slash summer reads 2022. Offer ends on the 5th of August 2022. Offer only available to UK residents. Please visit website for terms and conditions. <laughs> And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Elizabeth I of England and Catherine de' Medici of France were two of 16th century Europe's most influential figures. But power had a dangerous effect on their relationship drawing them together in intricate games of courtship, but also forcing them apart as religious violence consumed France. Rhiannon Davis spoke to Estelle Perank, the author of a new book on the subject, Blood, Fire and Gold, to find out more about these two powerhouses. Your book is about these two powerhouses of medieval Europe, Elizabeth I and Caterina de' Medici. Can you briefly introduce us to them? So these two women were extremely intelligent, extremely powerful. But what's very interesting as well is that one woman is going to be remembered and glorified for centuries to come, the other one much less so. And that's also why I'm so interested in in that dynamic. Now, who were they? I'm going to start with what people who are listening to us probably know most about Elizabeth I of England, daughter of Henry VIII and of Anne Boleyn. And uh, she was obviously declared a bastard at three years old. Then she was back into the world, back into, you know, the line for a succession. And against the odds, really, she's going to become Queen of England in 1558. Um, Her reign is obviously full of plot, conspiracies, 
but also um, there are large success. Um, I mean, the fact that she established, you know, a VR media church that is going to change over time, but the foundation of it is really like the Elizabethan church, what well, she's trying at least. Uh, it's obviously also the time for what we call the Elizabethan age, the time of the conquest of the new world. It's mostly a competition with Spain that is driving everything, which is... Not something that, you know, I'm not saying it's the, the best period of time. Uh, it involves, obviously, piracy. It involves slavery. It involves all of these um, hot topics, colonialism, that we don't really discuss. But that's also, the, her reign is the trigger to all of this. Because, to be fair to her, she kind of failed <laughs> badly at having colonies anywhere. Like, it's, it's the start of a very difficult well, it might be not the start, but it, there's, a, again, another trigger during her reign where it's very difficult with Ireland. And I think it's something as well that is mostly overlooked um, during her reign and, and things that need to be discussed. She was far from being perfect. I personally adore her, but not because, because she was not perfect, but mostly because um, she was not a feminist. Obviously, feminism is not an ocean that existed during the 16th century, but by setting up an example of an extraordinary woman, she serves as an example of feminism, if you see what I mean. Herself would never consider that women should have rights and stuff like this. But I love that, you know, what she's done during her reign meant that she really overcome patriarchal, you know, uh, ideals and um, and the society itself. And we all remember, we all know, well, maybe you don't, but we, I think we all do, when she declared, I know I have the body, but of a weak and feeble woman, but I have the heart and stomach of a king, and of a king of England too. It was for a long time my favourite, favourite quote ever, until I read her other speeches, and I now prefer, really prefer, in 1566, when she declared to her parliament that it should be monstrous that the feet should direct the head. And she's just declaring that men are the feet and that a woman is the head. And trust me, this is not acceptable in 16th century values, deeply religious. The head is Christ. The head is always in the man. You know, it's the, the feet is always women. And here in front of, you know, members of parliament who pissed her off massively asking her to marry and you know name an heir she's like telling them you are the feet i am the head if you had to summarize elizabeth's reign that would be that quote like the way she saw herself the way she presented herself and and her strength and her um and her cheek as well she's sassy like i mean like who does that elizabeth does that so that's <laughs> our first queen now our second queen is catherine de medici catherine de medici is an orphan She's from the powerful house of the Medici, but she's going to lose everything and almost everyone from a very young age. She's going to be raised by her aunts, by her grandmother, by, by uncles, who are going to become popes as well. So that's when she's become very interesting. But not interesting to the point where we offer her um, firstborn sons. I'm going to come to this. So obviously she, become, uh, she becomes an interesting pawn. She's this modest... Little girl, she's called fat, she's called ugly, she's called uninteresting, really. And and so we we have 
France, Francis I of France, who sees a way of getting more territories, having an alliance with the Pope because he's in the middle of Italian wars with Spain and with England and he really wants the, his part of Italy. And he's going to offer his second son, Henry. And Henry and Catherine are going to get married in October um, 1533 uh, in Marseille. And they're 13 years old. Catherine, you have to imagine this young girl who was an orphan, lost everything, being welcomed in one of the most powerful families in Europe. She's thrilled. She's this young boy who's very handsome, or at least she thinks so. I mean, if you look at the paintings, I mean, I, I think we can discuss it, but that, that, <laughs> everyone can have their own taste. It's fine. And then we have like this, she's absolutely in love with this young boy, but this young boy is not in love with her. So then um, the, the two couple were together. It's at first not really successful in terms of like um, having heirs and everything, but it becomes very problematic when Henry's older brother dies and they both become like the heir and heiress of the throne, Dauphin and Dauphine of France. So then the pressure for Catherine to have children increases and her husband is absolutely in love with his royal favourite, Diane de Poitiers, the most beautiful woman in the lands, who has complete power over this young man because she's older, she was his tutor. What we know is that Catherine spent years and years being humiliated by this beautiful woman who was older than, than her. She's going to go into details of like how to help Henry to be aroused and to have basically sex with his wife to have children. It's going to work, which is a bit horrific, I think, for, for Catherine, but she's going to have, in the end, 10 children. Um, not all of them are going to go to adulthood, but most of uh, seven of them are, are going to. She's just a very humble wife. She's completely devoted to her husband. She, so she kind of plays her role really well. Now, with Elizabeth, remember? Bastard. Catherine Orphan. Elizabeth, you know, removed from court. Catherine being humiliated at court. You, we have a parallel here that is that was striking me when I was interested in that part of history. And then we have Elizabeth and Catherine, 1558, 1559, 1560. Everything changes. Death brings glory. Catherine is going to lose her husband. Elizabeth loses her sister. For, for Elizabeth, it's really straightforward. She, she became queen. For Catherine, it's not straightforward. Her firstborn became king. He's married to Mary Stuart. Not one of my favourite queens, but he's married to Mary Stuart. Uh, but not for long, 18 months. And she's still, and this when she becomes a political advisor. It's when she really, truly shows that she's actually quite smart. Mm, and this is something I wanted to ask you about because their power, even though they're both powerful women, their power is different with Elizabeth being a queen regnant, but Catherine being this queen mother, this regent, but her power is slightly removed, isn't it? How do you think they felt about each other? Did they see each other as equals? That's so interesting that I said that, Rhiannon, because I think you're right. There's a difference of queenship here. We have a queen regnant and the other one is not a queen regnant. But what's beautiful with Catherine is that she never become regent 
like officially she 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 was regent she was controlling because her firstborn is going to die and then she, her nine nine years old son is going to become king and then she's going to be the the ruler of france all right but the thing is um she and and you called her queen mother it's the first time we have such a title in france before it was mother of the king Queen Dowager, she refused all this name and she called herself Queen Mother. The term Queen Mother is extremely powerful. What Catherine sees herself as extremely strong and powerful queen because she gets her power through her sons, her kings. She's a mother of kings. And the problem with Elizabeth, she's queen regnant, but lots of Catholics are saying, well... Are you really, you know, the legitimate queen of England? So I think that if we have like a parallel between a queen regnant, you know, that her legitimacy has been contested, and a queen mother who, whose legitimacy because she gave birth to sons who are kings cannot be really, you know, um, contested, but yet she's not the one really in power. She's not king of France. And yet we have these two women who are going to be at the forefront of things, especially under Charles IX's reign. Catherine, even when he's 13 years old, even even when he's crowned, my mother is still very much in charge. She remains in all privy councils, even with Henry III, you know, who was very much more in charge. Well, he was really, you know, he, he, he was older. He was in his 20s when he was king. But, uh, but she was still a massive... Uh, um, political advisor now do they see themselves as equal that's very interesting that you asked me that question because elizabeth surely didn't see catherine as an equal catherine sees herself in many ways as superior to elizabeth because she had given birth to children she really sees power and queenship and and uh, the importance of queens only through the lens of motherhood. And we know that Elizabeth doesn't because she remains single, doesn't want to have children. And for Catherine, it is kind of like, what are you doing? Like, are you stupid? Like, motherhood will give you more protection. It will, you know, it will protect you. It will protect your dynasty. It will, And so this is when we have over a decade of Catherine trying to convince Elizabeth to marry one of her sons. But when she's trying to do that, she's trying to get the upper hand on Elizabeth. She's trying to say, I would, and she says it in her letters, I, I would love to be, to call myself your mother. And Elizabeth's like, yeah. And sometimes she plays, she plays the game because Elizabeth always plays the game. But she's also like, well, yeah, but you, you know, I'm a queen regnant and you're not. So you know, so that's. I think it really depends on your point of view and where you where you put power into. And I've, for Elizabeth, it's really uh, in herself, and Catherine is really through her sons. So that's the biggest difference between the two women. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I think, in many ways, Elizabeth is everything that Catherine would have liked to be. This free woman in charge of her fate, without any men involved, without any pregnancies and birth involved. I mean, it's quite remarkable what Elizabeth has achieved. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate 
isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And you mentioned that courtship, and that's something that I found such an interesting part of the book, this cat and mouse game the two women play. Can you tell us a bit more about how Catherine positioned not one, not two, but three of her sons as potential husbands for Elizabeth? Honestly, it sounds absolutely ridiculous. Like, I I think that... (laughs) I think when you think about it, uh, from 1564... Until And we still have letters in 1583, so before Francis, Duke of Anjou, uh, you know, Alençon and then Anjou, uh, is going to die. We have this kind of a pursuit, you know, like they want Elizabeth. And even towards the end, when it's clear that she won't, because after 1581, she made up her mind kind of thing. And But, but the French are still like, how can we persuade her again? We were so close to, to make it, we were so close to make it, because, because to be fair, Francis didn't meet her and she did give him a ring she tr- she was like I'll promise I'll, I'll you know I will marry you and I don't think it was for love it was because I think he he amused her they, they developed a, a, a type of a friendship that was I, I won't that I don't think there was any love involved um th- there's a big age difference as well not saying that you know when you're an older woman you can't be loved by a younger man it's not what I'm saying at all but I'm just saying that the it doesn't seem that way. It doesn't seem that it was a loving, dovey, you know, oh, we can't be without one another type of thing. But there, there is, like, definitely seduction playing out. Uh, there's definitely friendship. And there's definitely, like, common grounds that could be found. Now, it's so funny because basically, as I said, it started in 1564. And the Catherine really, really wanted one of her sons to become king of England. And it's mostly her when you really think about it, because it's not really Charles or Henry, who was going to become Henry III, who really pursued Elizabeth. Uh, the only one who really pursued with his mother, <laughs> Elizabeth, is Francis. And I think that's why I, I, I loved writing this book. It's obviously because there's this big part of my book that is this pursuit and uh, trying to get Elizabeth to say yes. And the And what you have to understand is that, for me, I thought it was absolutely crazy that Elizabeth managed to make them believe for so long that she would say yes, but she played her cards well. She, you know, some events happened as well with, you know, the massacre of uh, Saint Bartholomew's Day. Um, So all of this played a role in not stopping, but on delaying answers, on making, helping Elizabeth making excuses. And also there is like all the men who are going to play the role, like the ambassadors, the French ambassadors. So we have one that is very close to her, Bertrand uh, de Salignac, but Fenelon is really, really close to Elizabeth. And they have like almost this friendship. I think he was really charmed by uh, her wit and uh, her intelligence and her and the way she was ruling. And then you have other ambassadors that really could not stand Elizabeth and they were really pro-maristrate, pro-gizes. And obviously they played a role as well in delaying things. And and so I think it's, it's, it's a game. Yeah, it's, it's a massive game that happens between Elizabeth and Catherine. 
And at the end, obviously, Catherine is massively pissed off because it never worked. And she literally lost so much time trying to seduce and pursue a woman who could not care less. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you can see how that would definitely be frustrating. And you mentioned letters a lot in the answer there. Can you tell us a bit more about the women's communications through letters? Yeah, so so that's where also it's so interesting and what has been so overlooked as well. They do exchange letters to one another. But what I found even more interesting and what we tend to forget, especially when we look at, you know, a raw um, letters, raw correspondence, is obviously that the ambassadors that they send, the special envoys that, you know, that they send to one another, all their mouths pieces right that they're supposed to represent themselves because the ambassadors receive letters for example if we look at the uh, english ambassadors they receive letters from elizabeth telling them what to say in the next audience so we had formal audiences when catherine and her sons but usually it was catherine receiving them and when catherine thought oh i didn't have a time enough to talk about things she would invite them in a private house private castle to have informal audiences and it's where you have even more information on you know the characters that played out so when there's a an audience uh, or a possibility to talk to someone it's not just about the letters that are exchanged obviously they would give also like private letters as what i love as well it, we would not have all the correspondence we would not have all the private letters that elizabeth might have said this letter needs to be given directly to catherine you know, hand-to-hand, and it's just for her eyes. And sometimes it must have happened because we do have certain examples of this, so we know that it must have happened, and we don't have access to this, but we do have access to ambassadors' reports packed with details, packed, basically, they are bringing those letters, the dispatches are bringing, you know, past to life. It's how I feel when I've read those letters. And it was absolutely amazing to to find that dynamic between the two women. So yes, to letters exchanged between them, and I've used them obviously as well. But also let's not forget all these men who were who played a massive role in that relationship. Mm. And did the women ever meet? They never met. They actually never met. But but Catherine wanted to. And Catherine said a few times that she would go um, to Dover uh, to to meet with Elizabeth, uh, obviously with her son, because obviously it was, again, as it always is, about trying to get, you know, Elizabeth to to marry, to agree for an alliance. And she would do that. She would always, like, let's meet, you know, she would be happy to do that. It's important to notice as well, or to remember that actually Catherine did travel. She went to see her daughter in the border of Spain, you know, when she, her first daughter was um, Elizabeth of Valois, the first wife of Philip II of Spain. But she met there. So she was really used to moving around. Also, another point, you know, that I want to mention is that Catherine is the one who started making progresses, you know, uh, around the country with her son. She wanted her son to, to be seen and everything. She wanted also to impose her own authority, something that Elizabeth then did in her own country when she made all the progresses. So it's not it's not just a, all about propaganda. It's really about um, being smart and politi- politically active, right? You need to be uh, in contact with the people you're ruling, especially when you're a woman and, and you want to kind of have not their approval, but their support. 
I guess, and allegiance, and there's a way of doing so. So Catherine was very, and she moved from, obviously, Italy to back to France. So what I'm saying is, like, she's a woman of Europe, Catherine, who was like, yes, I'll take a board, go to Duva, and, and meet you. Like, you know, that's a possibility. And I love that about Catherine, because we know Elizabeth never left England. She was less much so. Well, I mean, in many ways, she was less much so a, a, a woman of Europe. And at the same time, she really was because she was so involved in European politics. She's a European Protestant protector, a leader. And uh, so we, we have this balance of, of these two women who are similar and so different as well. And with, I, I would like also to, for us to remember something about them. They were not born to be queens. Elizabeth was third in line. What are the chances that, you know, neither her brother or, or sister would, you know, have a line of their own? And Catherine, I mean, against all the odds, became queen consort and then against all the odds managed to become queen mother and have such a massive political influence because obviously usually when you when your husband dies the king dies then you're just a queen dowager and you, you have a nice castle but you you have to kind of like you know go away and and it's not the case for Catherine so remarkable women remarkable queens who are gonna you know mark the history of their countries mark the history of Europe to European queens and yet these women were like Outsiders almost like, you know, like the underdogs, the underdogs who became so, so powerful. Definitely. And you mentioned in that answer that Elizabeth was really involved in European politics. And this is why I wanted to take the conversation next, thinking about when their relationship sours. Why was Calais in particular such a sticking point for the two women? A very good question. So Calais had been part of England for for a very long time, you know, between the wars, between France and England, like we can we can go back and, and it was a, an English territory. But in 1558, Mary Tudor, who was still alive, is going to lose Calais because of her involvement with... So Philip II of Spain is at war with France. Now, I have something to say about Calais because they would have never recovered Calais without Catherine. It's the Catherine gave a speech. It's the most beautiful speech you'll ever read, probably. I, I was so touched when I found it. And it's Catherine appealing to the Parliament when a uh, Parlement, the Paris, when Henry is at war, she he's made a regent, co-regent, which really annoyed Diane de Poitiers. And uh, and and Henry um, made her co-regent. So I think at some point he, he realized that his wife was actually very intelligent and was and maybe he should give her more credit. And it's actually sad because towards the end of his life, I think they were getting closer and closer in terms of being partners. I think he never was in love with her, but I think he had a loss of affection was growing, right? And I think Diane de Poitiers really didn't like that. But anyway, in this speech, she managed to convince Parlement Paris and the people there to fund her husband's army. And with her army, he pushed back the English. So Kelly was lost. Mary the first died. Elizabeth is like, what happened? I want Kelly back. And Elizabeth has this obsession for the first five years of her reign where she wants Kelly back. And Catherine is going to become, you know, regent in all but name, really. 
king in all of that name. Um, and she's going to be like, no, you're not going to get it back. And Elizabeth is going to use the tensions in France, the first war of religion in 1562. We said she was a European queen, interested in European politics. She's hel- she's interested in helping European Protestants. And so she's going to back, you know, the Huguenots, the French Protestants, we call them the Huguenots, and she's going to support them financially, militarily, and she's going to make sure that they receive, you know, support. They're going to occupy a city, uh, Le Havre, and she's going to then say to Catherine, if you give me back Calais, I'll give you back Le Havre. And Catherine showed, I don't want to renew, I want you to read all of this, but uh, it's she showed how intelligent she was. You know, she has this reputation of being manipulative, of being, you know... Uh, um, I think any woman who's intelligent has a bad reputation, to be fair, like, just because, you know, they think it's outside the box and they shouldn't. They just, you know, should think about making bread and that's it. Or cake, because bread is boring, right? But what? But Catherine thought, all right, if I can appease my people in France, the Huguenots, then they will side with the French again, with the French army, with the French Catholic army. And she managed that, and together they pushed back the English from Le Havre, and then Elizabeth had no, you know, leverage for Calais. And then a crazy story happens with her ambassadors, the way they were treated. And it's mind-blowing what Catherine is doing. She's playing games. She's lying outright. She'll do anything to win that battle. And this is how they started their relationship, which is not great. It became better because then Catherine wanted absolutely the throne of England for one of her sons. But then we realised that, you know, um, their relationship was going, again, to turn very sour at the end of the reign of Elizabeth because Elizabeth is getting more powerful. is not afraid of showing it. She's going to make decisions that are going to be appalling for Catherine's execution of Mary Stuart being the one. And so it's... And then she's going to win against Spain. So she's just this... I think in many ways, Elizabeth is everything that Catherine would have liked to be. This free woman in charge of her fate, without any men involved, without any pregnancies and birth involved. I mean, it's quite remarkable what Elizabeth has achieved, you know, and and I think that's why Catherine despised her so much at the end. It's because when you when you have such so much hatred, you must think about you desire something from a, you know, like there's something that you envy that you never got, really. So would you say then that that is their biggest dividing factor rather than something like religion? Oh, definitely. I think both of them were actually, for the time, for the period, quite tolerant. I'm not saying they were like, yeah, don't believe in, in God, you're fine. But I do believe that for Elizabeth, what mattered most up to 1570, because obviously then from 1570, when she's excommunicated, she does change her policies. She does persecute Catholics. She does, like, she's persuaded to do so. I don't think that from a, a personal um, point of view, I think she, I, I don't think she would have done it, if I'm honest. It's how I see her is what, you know, it's when you read also like her prayers and everything. It's very hard to say exactly. I mean, of course, you see the humanist ideals, you see the reformist, reformed ideas, 
But could you really say a Protestant hardcore? No, she also like doesn't really like some of what the Protestants and the Puritans are going to do. So I think she's really in the middle. And and for Catherine, massively religious, massive, massively Catholic herself. I mean, niece of a pope, obviously very much Catholic. But like anyone else, she understood power. She understood politics. And contrary to what people believe, she was very much... Um, interested in um in making peace she wanted peace in france so she wanted to find compromise uh and so in that way i don't think that the the rivalry is about you know um religion though it is true that one is a catholic hammer the other one is a protestant savior in a way it, they're pushed into these roles but i don't think that means that they that's where they wanted to be. And I wanted to ask you how Elizabeth responds to Catherine's death, because obviously, as you've said, their relationship has deteriorated. But how does she react to the news? It's a very good question, because we do have one letter that she sent to Henry III, who obviously is king of uh, France at the time. And they had developed a kind of a, a friendship uh, in 1589, 1580, 1589. So... Uh, she felt like she had to say something. But what's very interesting with that letter is that it's quite, it's a page, if I remember correctly, it's the right letter. It's a page long letter. Uh, and she has put a line through some words and so even some paragraphs, but you can still read what she wrote, which I like. And she's extremely, um, in all honesty, she's extremely respectful of Catherine. She acknowledges what she's accomplished, securing her line, giving birth to kings. Obviously, at that time, we didn't think Henry III was about to die the same year. So obviously, like, you know, Elizabeth thought that the line was protected. Um, and we're still hopeful. Louise de Savoie, his wife, um, well, Louise de, de Lorraine Vaudemont, who was also known as Louise de Savoie, but um, his wife was, like, um, going to... Um, to have to, it was still a possibility. I mean, like, I'm not sure how much it would have happened, but, but there was still hope, let's put it that way. But actually, we, there, there was no way because um, Louise had a miscarriage in, um, when she was younger and could not have children after that. But no one knew, you know, there was no medicines like today. So we didn't know how bad it had been and everything for her, but it, had, it was actually quite bad. But for, uh, for Elizabeth, so she was right. She was extremely respectful. We have the letter in my book where she explains how, how she viewed uh, Catherine. But what I was really interesting is what she scrubbed, what she didn't, what she pretended that she didn't want him to see. But yet she sent the letter. And so it's almost like I'm going to say all these nice things, but then I'm going to put a line through on them. So, and I'm going to be more formal. And yet this 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 personal, almost intimate part of the letter in that letter. And I found it very interesting uh, when it happened. I think that um, Elizabeth realised that once it happened, she was um, the only queen left. Um, now her players were all male, her male counterparts. Like you know, even even if Catherine was not a queen regnant, she still had been a sort of rival. And by fifteen eighty eight, you know, fifteen eighty seven, Mary Stuart was gone. Fifteen eighty nine, Catherine de' Medici was gone. And I mean, yes, there were other strong women in place, but um, notably like Philip II's daughters were growing in, in power and stuff. But 
they were nowhere near her level of power and um and she really i think it's almost like a loss of um it's almost a loss also of um of an old no maybe friend but you know an old you know when you know someone you you haven't always been on good terms with someone but you've known someone for or you exchange letters or you exchange words through men for almost like 30 years and it's like that person is gone it is a shift in elizabeth's reign it is a shift i think in elizabeth's uh, mentality she's one of all her rivals and that's quite i think um uh, an important moment definitely And for my last question, I want to go back to something that you said right at the very start of this conversation, where you pointed out everyone knows Elizabeth's name today, but not Catherine. Why is that? Because history doesn't write about the losers. It writes about the the victors, right? So that's the first reason. It's also because um, Catherine has a black legend around her name like she's uh, she's absolutely absolutely vilified uh, uh, blamed for everything that happened in france in the 16th century all the religious wars that happened between protestant catholics is because of her not true and the fact that there was lots of xenophobia because she was actually she was half french half uh, italian um so that's important her mother's side she was extremely french another interesting point to make but yet she was only remembered as this Italian, you know, woman. Um, also because her her sons or the her last Valois, the last Valois king, was also vilified. He was seen a, a, as a tyrant. Again, absolutely unfair to him. He was actually, I really believe Henry III was a good king. He was just a... He, the Guises are like... I'm not saying they're the villain of the 16th century, but they are like, uh, because that that would be unfair as well to just say that, but they are really like a pain in the ass to many, many rulers, Elizabeth, Henry, Catherine, even Philip II. And just to clarify, these are a powerful Catholic family in France, right? Extremely powerful. Uh, They're the family of Mary Stuart. Uh, They are um, extremely powerful. They're they're, uh, prince of blood. They have a right to the throne as what they want, you know, and they want their whole family to control Europe, to be fair, like they want their niece, you know, to control England and Scotland, and they want to control France. For all these reasons, it means that Catherine was vilified and forgotten. And I think that obviously in France and Italy, I think she's quite well remembered, but for the wrong reasons, with a very bad legend around her. I'm not saying that authors and historians have not worked on that already. They have you know, I'm not saying I'm the only one. I'm here, like you. No, um, I'm just building onto that, and I and I hope that by comparing her to someone as well known and so powerful and so respected as Elizabeth I, it does shed light on Catherine's success, accomplishments, and life. You know, because she deserves her life, you know, with clear eyes of what happened, deserves to be recognised, deserves to be told to the public. That was Estelle Perank. Her book, Blood, Fire and Gold, is on sale now from Ebury Press. You can also read a version of this interview in the August issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. Mm-hmm.